This episode contains conversation about gun violence. Please take care of yourself as needed. Abolition is a calling, but it is also my religion. I believe in a God of liberation, and I'm so convicted by it that it has converted me and my practices to find liberation in all that I do. This is Sanctified, the Littest Church service where hot girls and holiness align. And we are your hosts. I'm Deborah Joy Winans. I'm a wife, a mother, an actor, but most importantly, I'm a lover. And I'm LaVon Briggs, Emmy Award winner, Joy Chaser, and a Queens girl. And when my old church asked me to wear stockings, I bought fishnets. And this is the kind of church that rocks with the Megan the Stallions just as much as the Mahalia Jacksons. On Sanctified, we center the testimonies of sisters who are figuring out their faith authentically. And we're going to ruffle some of the saints' feathers, y'all. But we will always leave you feeling affirmed and loved. You ready, LaVon? Let's go get them. Do you have the joy of the Lord today, LaVon? Listen, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Okay, not my strength. Amen. My strength. <laughs> that that means you're extra strong. Look, <laughs> because honestly, truly, I'm a goofball. If you know anything about me. <laughs> oh, I know this. <laughs> I don't think they know, but I know. If you tell me I'm funny, honey. Oh, you got me. Because that means I'm comfortable around you. That means that I feel free around you. Feeling free is a thing. For a Black woman, it's revolutionary, honey. What does freedom mean to you, DJ? Just being able to be myself, regardless of where I am, the vicinity that I find my body, I just am able to be me. I love that. For me, I love to conjure the words of Nina Simone. In a 1968 interview, she was asked, what does freedom mean to you? And she said, no fear. And I thought being brave and courageous in the face of fear, but just not feeling fear, that means I feel safe and soft and free, honey. Mm. And that's the world that I know Black girls and women and femmes deserve, you know? And one of the ways that I imagine that happening is through the very specific idea of abolition. Being an abolitionist means that I am dreaming of a world where we get to be who we are and we're celebrated and loved for it. So it's, it's a heavy topic, but I think it can conjure a lot of joy when you think about being free. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that we're discussing abolition because it's something that I didn't fully understand. And I still think that I'm making my way through understanding. But I do know that you identify as an abolitionist. And so let's break down what abolition actually means. Let's talk about it. Let's get into it. Webster says abolition is the action or act of abolishing a system, practice, or institution. Yes. And often when we hear the word abolition, we think about abolishing the police. And I think that's a part of it. Also, and when I think about abolition, I don't just think about getting rid of police or just prison reform. There's more to it than that. Well, I'm glad you said that because as we were talking and researching a few weeks ago, we discussed 
Dr. Angela Davis and her longstanding work as an abolitionist. And more specifically, a quote of hers where she said, abolition is not primarily a negative strategy. It is about re-envisioning. Yes, that is it right there. All right. So for the uninitiated, Dr. Angela Y. Davis is a Black feminist, political activist, scholar, educator, and she is among the four most Black women abolitionists that everyone should know. And Dr. Davis talks a lot about how defunding the police isn't just about taking funds away from police, but shifting those funds to new institutions like mental health counselors who can respond to people in crisis without being armed, housing, education, universal health care, recreation, right? So it's not just we defund the police and all that money goes into pockets of big wig corporate people. Like, no, it goes into the community. Many people believe abolition is necessary because if we look at the roots of the police force, there's no way to reform it. Some people don't know this, but police officers actually originated as slave patrol. Mm. (laughs) And so when that is baked into it, there's no way to make that better or to dress that up or to reform that. And so it's really about getting rid of the colonized mindset that even designed a slave patrol slash a police force in the first place. Because for me, I have never been around a cop car and felt safe. When I see that big old truck that looks like a tank (laughs) and it got sheriff on the side, like that does not support my nervous system. And it makes me think a lot about how Black women in particular are being affected by policing and over-policing. In fact, The way the prison system has impacted Black women is quite staggering. According to the Sentencing Project, in 1980, there were 26,378 women who were incarcerated nationwide. And in 2019, Deborah Joy, that number increased to 222,455. That's an increase of 743%. And if that is happening with women, then it is absolutely trickling down to our school systems. Thinking about our Spare the Rod episode, how we talked about the adultification of young Black children, period. It is leading to our children being treated like adults. The way they're handcuffed, the way they're thrown to the ground to cement. Children are being thrown and tossed to cement to be arrested. Young babies, they are not seen as babies. And and that is the problem. I think about my son and I have often said, I think that children period are just high doses of dopamine. I know that my child is, and there is something about him and just his little light that both, you know, my husband and I talk about how do we protect that? How do we guard his light in a world where a lot of times police officers in particular want to darken it, want to dampen it? I feel the same way about my nephew. And how do we do that when our mothers, (laughs) 60% of our mothers are being imprisoned and they have children that are under the age of 18. So, so what are these babies going to do? And we learned that from the Institute uh, for Women's Policy and Research, more than 60%. Yeah. And abolition really helps us to focus on what we're building for these mothers, for their families, and not just what we're tearing down in society, right? So there are some 
myths and misconceptions around abolition that I think would be helpful to chat about during this conversation. So the first one is that police and the prison system are necessary for law and order, right? The idea that we need policing is a misconception. On this soil, we haven't had the chance to see what life could be like without the prison system. And so how can we say society needs this system if we've never known life without it? Something to ponder. I don't understand what life would be like without that. That makes me nervous. What makes you nervous, DJ? While I know we need change, life without a police system and in turn a place where where people can go that have really brought harm to the community. But I understand that that a change is necessary. I don't know. I'm just, I'm pondering. <laughs> yeah, in real time. And I think there are some people who need to be removed from the community, right? Like using my African-centered worldview, like there are some people who just need to be removed. But for the folks for whom policing or being put in prison, like because of a mental health challenge, right? Or because they stole because they were poor. I'm like, I think there are other things that we can use money for to support people so that they don't have to steal so that they don't end up in prison. So it's a very nuanced conversation as well. So thank you for that offering. Absolutely. It's a conversation that needs to be had as well. I think another misconception could be that people think Black people cannot live together without harming one another. When in fact, (laughs) crime is simply just based upon where you live. Sometimes there are things that happen, but if you live in an all-white neighborhood, you're going to find some white-on-white crime too. So stop acting like Black people just want to harm Black people. That is such a myth and a misconception, and it needs to be shut down. I agree. Please stop saying Black-on-Black crime, (laughs) y'all. Please, please, please. Unless you're going to say white-on-white too. That'll be the day. Right? But I think that in understanding those misconceptions, I think a big way to redefine it in a way that I in particular, appreciate looking at it, is understanding that Jesus's philosophy of freedom entails more than freedom from sin. And specifically, we can talk about his first sermon in Nazareth, where he prioritized his concern for the incarcerated. So we're talking about Luke 4.18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. Anointed. The way you are acting like the amen section is Proclaim. hilarious. <laughs> recovery. I can't stand read reader. Read reader. Come on, somebody. He's quoting Isaiah 61 and 12. So concern for the incarcerated is all throughout the Bible. Jesus was concerned about the poor, the lonely, those who didn't have enough economically, all of it. And so this ties back to Dr. Davis's point about shifting funding to housing, to ending food insecurity. There are so many other things that we can be focused on and doing. And to know for me, while I may not right now see myself as an abolitionist, I do think that being able to see that it is important to God to see these prisoners and to set them free and to understand where they're coming from and to make sure there is housing and food for the poor and the hungry. These are things that were important to Jesus. And I think that we can use that in redefining what we need and what 
abolitionist means, you know. That makes me really teary, DJ, because when I think about freedom, apart from sin, there's such a heavy emphasis and focus on community and caring for each other and love. And that's what Jesus commanded us to do was to love our neighbor. And so I'm moved because abolition imagines a brighter future for us and especially for those who are coming after us. When I think about what life was like for our ancestors before the European colonizers got to the continent, we didn't need jail because of how we were so careful and intentional with a soul before the soul materialized in the physical realm. You know, the scripture that says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And our ancestors would try to know you. (laughs) Who are you? What's your purpose? And from the point of birth, supporting that purpose. And so when I think about that kind of nurturing, that's the philosophy and the framework and the hope that goes into stewarding a soul, right? So that a person doesn't become a prisoner. Like I would, I just want to avoid prison altogether. And so some of us can't imagine abolition because we can't imagine pre-colonialism. But when I think about that and when I dream about that, it makes me hopeful. Yeah. And I see how Gen Z is running around in these streets (laughs) and they inspire me because I'm like, no, there's another way. And someone who's helping us to dream about another way is our testifier today. Dr. Nakia Smith-Robert is an interdisciplinary scholar and expert whose research is located at the intersection of race, gender, and class with an emphasis on Black women and mass incarceration. Dr. Robert is a global speaker, ordained clergy, healthcare chaplain, and religious studies professor. She is also the founder and executive director of Abolitionist Sanctuary, a faith-based grassroots nonprofit organization committed to the intersection of religion and abolition. The mission of Abolitionist Sanctuary is to empower Black churches to embody emancipatory theology and abolitionist principles to repair, restore, and rebuild society. Let's hear from Reverend Dr. Nikia Smith-Robert now. My name is Reverend Dr. Nakia Smith-Robert, and this is my testimony. I have always been a believer in freedom and liberation for all. My brother was incarcerated, and I remember at the age of 12 receiving a letter from prison, my first one, and it was a Christmas card uh, with a baby manger and Jesus. The card was titled, Oh Holy Night. I think about the irony that we would find something holy in Jesus who would be so impacted by carcerality in the early Christian community. I grew up to a single poor Black mother in Harlem, New York, and I watched her make questionable decisions to survive. And sometimes that meant bending the rules or breaking the law. And according to society standards, her agency would be criminalized. But for me and my family and even our community, it it literally saved our lives and ensured that there was food on our table, clothes on our back, a roof over our head. The decisions my mother made was always in direct response to a larger structural injustice. And so if she forged a doctor's note to get a day off of work during an inconvenient school holiday, 
uh, so that she could care for her children, it was because she could not afford child backup care. Sometimes she would mitigate astronomical rent increases by doing funny calculations on a rent leasing agreement to renew it. It wasn't because she was trying not to pay her rent. It was because of gentrification and eminent domain that buildings were privatized and charging market rate rent that she could not afford. In my own research, I look at how God cared so much about people who are criminalized that God entered into history through Jesus who would be criminalized. And then Jesus in his life and ministry demonstrates his concern for those who are criminalized. That sounds like an abolitionist mission to me. And so abolition is a calling, but it is also my religion. I believe in a God of liberation and I'm so convicted by it that it has converted me and my practices to find liberation in all that I do. I turned my research into a nonprofit organization called Abolitionist Sanctuary. We go and we sit down with religious leaders in their church and their laity or their congregation, and we help them to assess the ways in which their church teachings may be punitive and reproduce carceral logic. And then we train them on ways they can identify alternatives that are less harmful, that are restorative and aligned with abolitionist values. If I were to write a letter to Black women who were touched by the carceral system, it would be titled, Sis, You Are Enough. No matter what your story is, none of that nullifies that God created you as a part of everything that's good in this world and that nothing can detach you from what God has called you to. My name is Reverend Dr. Nakia Smith-Robert, and that is my testimony. We'll be right back with the fellowship after this. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome, Dr. Nakia. I know you from Harlow. Give us a Harlem shake one time, honey. Hey. hey. <laughs> Ooh, okay, guys. I can't Harlem shake. I tried. Can't do it. Oh, uh, we'll practice. Hey, uh, Millie Rock on Annie Black. Hey. <laughs> you know what? Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Robert. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Sanctified. Yes, welcome to Sanctified. I want to know, because your testimony was really, really powerful. Can you tell us about your mother's experience with incarceration and the impact that it had on you and your family? Thank you. So I grew up in Harlem, New York, in the same building as the Central Park Five, who are now the Exonerated Five. Uh, Kevin Richardson lived on my same floor. So talking about mutual aid as an abolitionist mechanism, we would 
be at his door knocking for eggs and sugar and all the things to try to get by. And both were single parent homes and the women relied on each other within the community. Uh, My mom gave birth to my brother at the age of 15. She lived in the same block as uh, James Baldwin's family and Sylvia's from Harlem and Jack Hay and Pee Wee Kirkland. Um, So a lot of people came out of their block. And so there was a deep sense of community. But she tried to provide higher quality of life for us. And that meant moving a little downtown on 110th Street and Fifth Avenue, which wasn't yet gentrified. So it's not what we know now with multi-million dollar condominiums by Columbia University. And she still struggled. And she would sometimes forge doctor's notes to get a day off of work during an inconvenient school holiday. Um, I remember one time I was home waiting in the common area and a man robbed the video store across the street from us. And he ran through our development and his gun fell at my feet. And what I thought were batteries scattering, in hindsight, I mean, only maybe a few years ago, I realized those were actually bullets that were scattering from his gun. So there was a lot of violence where we lived. Um, I saw a lot of things. I've seen bodies fall off the roof in front of me as I was walking. I've been in shootouts, um, in the path of bullets, just a lot of violence. And at that time, it was at the height of the war on drugs. And so my mom was desperate, right, to ensure our safety, uh, that we would survive. And sometimes that meant breaking rules and uh, breaking the law. And I think that is the strategy of many Black women, of knowing how to make a dollar out of 15 cents and how to make a way out of no way when your back is against the wall. And just watching her survival strategies, um, which included mitigating rent renewal agreements, right? And sometimes you had to be creative with that because if you had too many people on the lease, that meant your rent would go up. If you had too little people on your lease, that mean they would move you out of your apartment and downsize you to a smaller apartment. And community was just so important, right? So no one wanted to take the risk of losing their neighbors, the people they relied on for milk, sugar, and eggs, right? And so it's all the things that she did to be creative and courageous and show ingenuity in order to survive and provide for us against the backdrop of gentrification, poverty, pay inequities, and and carcerality. Dr. Nakia, you humanize these tender, hard, tough decisions that have to be made all in the name of good mothering, parenting, communitying. And so it's clear the effect that incarceration has an effect on the people, right? And in your work, you're working with churches so that we can have a more positive impact on those who are affected by incarceration. So can you give us an example of how your work with churches has positively impacted those who've been affected by incarceration? Absolutely. So I enter into that uh, three ways. One, as ordained clergy in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME, as a professor, as an academic and researcher and writer, and also as the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Abolitionist Sanctuary. And from those three lens, I build on my experience as a way to reappraise poor Black mothers' moral decision-making. So how can we rethink 
uh, Black women's survival strategies, not as a vice, not as criminal, not as sin, not as deviant, but as virtue, as salvific. Wow. It literally saved my life, right? That my mom sometimes bent rules and broke the law. It saved our lives. It was a, a form of salvation, ensure that there was food on our table, clothes on our back, and a roof over our head. So how do we take away the individual blame and condemnation and instead in interrogate and indict the larger structural injustices that lead to those decisions of survival and desperation in the first place against a system that is stacked up against us, right? Mm. Black women are the poorest of poor of every other ethnic group except for Native American women. Black women, with being the poorest, are often the sole providers of their households, of 80% of households. And what we find is that Black women are also the most religious demographic, and they count on their religion to get through difficult times. But here's the thing. Churches aren't talking about their experiences with criminality and carcerality. According to one report, only a third of churches actually mention the criminal system in their sermons. So with Abolitionist Sanctuary, we see that as a gap that we want to fill in helping churches to address and speak to the experiences of Black women rather than using their theologies to criminalize them and condemn them for trying to make a way out of no way. Dr. Nakia, this is so powerful because a lot of times we can just look at the situation and say this is wrong, but you have created the abolitionist sanctuary to bridge the gap and to help us in churches, particularly the black church, to see the places that we need to fill and and help and change and grow. You're not just turning your back. You are giving and helping us as the church to become more knowledgeable and understandable and also to be able to give and help black women. Community is so important. Thank you for what you're doing. That's exactly it. Because you understand that a lot of black women are not just going to all of a sudden not be religious, not just going to stop going to church because church is where they have found so many things that they need, but there is a gap that needs to be filled. And it's so beautiful how you're filling it. So talk about community because there are so many causes that need the community effort. So for those people that want to learn more about what you do and how to get involved, what would you tell them? Yeah. So I want to start with the proclamation that abolition is my religion because we serve a God of the oppressed and a Jesus who announced his ministry as setting the captives free. And so if we are to continue in that tradition, it is a tradition of liberation that is aligned with abolition, that Jesus said, as often as you do it for the least of these, you've done it for me. And in that, he said, have you visited those who are in prison, right? Jesus himself was arrested on trumped up charges, died a criminal's death between two thieves in a state sanctioned execution. Preach, preacher. That Jesus is Breonna Taylor and Mike Brown and George Floyd, right? Mm. And that I would encourage churches to really interrogate the ways in which they are complicit and theologies that reinforce punishment and carceral logic. Black people are criminalized at the highest rates in society. They need not to come in the church where they are to find salvation and safety and sanctuary and be further condemned, right? And so what we want to do is help to train churches 
to assess their teachings and their practices so that they are no longer complicit with carceral logic, with criminal systems, and instead are preaching the social gospel, the Black social gospel, the liberation, the good news of setting the captives free Mm. and turning the world upside down so the last shall be first, right? And so we want to do that teaching. We do abolitionist sanctuary services where we help churches uh, and religious leaders reimagine their worship service through the lens of abolition. We are rolling out uh, phase two of our strategic plan, which is a social learning an e-commerce platform where people can become certified as abolitionist sanctuaries by taking online courses for credit and for certification. And we are also launching a abolition April awareness month in which we are trying to organize uh, religious leaders and organizers around the country to petition local governments for an official April Abolitionist Awareness Month. And so we have several programming there. If people would like to reach us, uh, they can contact us at www.abolitionistsanctuary.org. They could follow us on social platforms at Abolitionist Sanctuary. And we are looking for partners. We're looking for funders. And we're doing incredible work. We've partnered with Team Rock, the United Way, Until Freedom, and Faith for Black Lives, and the, and the list goes on. So we're excited to be the leaders of a faith-based abolitionist movement. Come on, leadership. Dr. Nakia, there is a way that the conversation around abolition can be very intellectual and in the head, right? And we've talked a lot about reimagining and dreaming, which can be a thorough if you let them. It's so hard for many people to imagine a country or a world without the carceral system. And they're wondering, well, we tear down the current systems, what will replace them? What does a future with abolition look and feel like, especially with faith communities actively involved? I like to see abolition not as an answer, but as a process and an invitation for others to join in this coalition of reimagining. So I'll offer one vision, but it's not the vision, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, we're planning a gala at the end of the year and it's called Freedom Futures. And so we think about Freedom Futures. It means from theologically that we are preaching, teaching, living liberation, that we are an extension of Jesus's ministry to set the captives free. It means that we are not silent. We are not bystanders against injustices, uh, but we are on the front lines activating our faith in liberative ways. Mm-hmm. Socially, it means non-reformist reforms, such as using transformative justice strategies and public policies to work within the system for change, but ultimately to create a system that is more just and equitable. So some of those transformative justice strategies may be ensuring that people on the inside have access to mental health care services and that women have access to hygiene products, right? So some of those interim short-term kind of fixes, these non-reformist reforms. Policy, it it may mean a redistribution of wealth, right? Um, I'm looking at the guaranteed basic income that we're seeing. We see conversations of reparations Mm re-emerging. Hello. Means ending policing and identifying alternatives, community-led approaches to public safety, 
that we don't have to call the police for mental health issues or traffic stops, right? Because for Black people, we don't get help. Instead, it's death dealing and fatal. Um, We want to get rid of policing, traffic stops, punishment, bail systems, and find alternatives where people can thrive, right? That we could do more than survive, but in fact thrive. So we look at social welfare states such as uh, Denmark, right? It has higher taxation, mm. but there's universal health care, universal education, you know, higher maternity and paternity leaves. And what you see in, in Denmark, it ranks number two behind Finland on the World Happiness Index. So people are happier there. And we also see a significant decrease in crime. So perhaps if people can meet their basic needs and thrive with access to education, and healthcare and equitable wages, that perhaps there will not be crime, right? But I will say this, even as we are imaginist abolitionist futures, it would be a utopia to think Mm -hmm. that harms will not exist, right? That we are human, we're fallible, so harms will exist. But what abolition does, it gives us a tool set to respond in restorative and transformative ways, right? That we don't respond with punishment and prison and alienation, right? But instead we respond in ways that as I define abolition, according to three R's, is to repair harms, restore relationships, and rebuild more just and equitable systems. That all that we do, Mm -hmm. that when harms occur, that we respond in ways that repair, restores, and rebuilds so that we can thrive as a community of care. You brought up one of my favorite words, which is utopia. (laughs) I experienced that. The first time I went to Martha's Vineyard and I saw all these Black people there and there were no locks on the doors. Nobody was locking the doors. The babies was walking around unsupervised on day. I was just like, this is amazing. But the price you have to pay to get there though. (laughs) praise the lord it was a birthday present from my then boo and my mother so i was living my best life but to your point you mentioned this phrase transformative justice for the uninitiated could you explain to us what that is yeah transformative justice is making structural change right Uh, that are making systems more just and equitable that it is a complete overhaul of oppressive hierarchies where there is the richest and the poorest right but transformative justice ensures that that the system the the infrastructures that it's just and equitable yes that includes everyone absolutely community is important who are some of the black women that you have looked up to in this particular work? I would say my mom foremost. Uh, my mom was deeply religious, very faithful, filled with prayer. I actually eulogized my mom. She passed away in 2012. And I remember making people laugh because she has such a deep sense of faith and prayer uh, that there was one day that the VCR stopped working. So I'm dating myself for the VCR, right? The VCR stopped working. And for her, the VCR was a way to keep my brother off the streets because he loved movies. So it was really important that it worked in our house, right? But we didn't have anyone to help fix it. And mama prayed. And I swear to you, she prayed that VCR back to life. Like that VCR resurrected and worked again. I love it. (laughs) 
But she was also real. She would sit at the table and, and drink her doer's white label. And many people didn't know that, but she was a, a closet smoker. Sometimes she would have her Capri menthol. Okay. Uh, so she was real, right? Yeah. People counted on her encouragement. There's not a person in this world, I promise you, that could say a bad thing about her. She was special. And so I hope I would measure up to just an inch of her stature in my lifetime. I think about my mom and you just never know all the things that our mothers or grandmothers have endured. And yet they still, you know, find a way to make a way. When you got a child, you just, you find a way to make a way. Yes. That's really beautiful, Dr. Nakia. The three R's, repair, restore, and rebuild. That's right. You a preacher, honey. On some days. (laughs) And we're so glad you came and you didn't just preach, you taught and you loved us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate all the amazing work that you're doing with Sanctified. Uh, Harlem Shake one time for you go. Hey. hey, Many, many thanks to Reverend Dr. Nakia Smith-Robert. We're going to take a short break, but coming up next, it's offering time. Well, guys, it is time for church announcements. You know, we got to get them in. So before we get to offering, we got to talk about a few things. Now, we are so grateful for all of the love that you've been showing us here at Sanctified. It's affirming. It's beautiful. We are very blessed and grateful. And because we want to continue to build and welcome you into more Sanctified episodes and just the whole community, we need you to do a couple things for us. We need you to tap the follow button, beloved, so that you are notified of everything we do over here at Sanctified. And don't forget to rate us on the Spotify app. So just go ahead, give us five. It's all good. We understand. We appreciate that. And lastly, tap that bell so you're notified as soon as a new episode is released. All right, that's it for our church announcements, child. Let's get into the offering. It's offering time, my favorite time. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It sure is, y'all. And on Sanctified, we bring affirming words to offer to you. So what offering do you have for the people of God on today? As I said earlier, while I may not identify as an abolitionist, when you listen and you learn, there are places where you can grow individually. And what I've learned today, outside of just reinforcing that Jesus was all about our freedom, that... The three R's are major, Mm. repair, restore, rebuild. And so I think that's something that we can all practice um, in our communities instead of walking away from relationships or letting things go, recognizing that we need each other to survive. And in order to survive in community, we have to be willing to repair, restore, and rebuild. Oh, just saying those words makes me feel more at ease. My offering for today is around taking a deeper dive, exploratory position, if you will, around other Black women abolitionists. And these are names that we must speak if we're going to be talking about this. First is Mariam Kaba. Mariam Kaba views prison abolition as the total dismantling of prison and policing while also and simultaneously 
building up community services and opposes the reform of policing. And she actually coined this quotation, hope is a discipline. And when I think about the scripture that says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, I don't think hope is that far behind. Mm -hmm. Ruth Wilson Gilmore has a focus on carceral geography, which examines the relationships between landscape, natural resources, political economy, infrastructure, and the policing, jailing, caging, and controlling of population. And so literally putting us back in right relationship with the land, which as African people, the land is mother nature. And lastly, but certainly not least, and certainly not a conclusive list, Derricka Purnell, an American lawyer, writer, and organizer, and author of the 2021 memoir, Becoming Abolitionists. So I would invite folks to look up one, two, or all three of these amazing Black women who are doing incredible work out in the world. Amen. Amen, y'all. We got to talk about some hard shit today. And... I'm grateful for the space, honestly, because this is where the healing happens. So that's why we do what we do. Thank y'all so much for joining us on Sanctified today. Please come on back and get even more sanctified with us next week and bring a sister friend with you. Or two. Or three. (laughs) (laughs) Also, please email us at sanctified at unbotherednetwork.com and let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about next. Mm -hmm. And until next week, remember, you are worthy. Sanctified is a Spotify original series produced in partnership with Jamel Hill's Unbothered Network, Lodge Freeway Media, and Exit 39. Hosted by Deborah Joy Winans and LaVon Briggs. From Unbothered Network, Lodge Freeway Media, and Exit 39, executive producers are Jamel Hill and Evan Dick. Head of content for Unbothered is Christina Tapper. Head of network production and operations is Rich Burner. Creative producer is Ashley J. Hobbs. Editor is Ayana Angel. And associate producer is Rachel J. Pilgrim. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. Creative executive is Grace Delia. Senior program manager is Jessica Dow. And program manager is Jenna Lonergan. Special thanks to all the cross-functional teams at Spotify that helped bring this program to life. This episode includes original music produced by Cheyenne G. New episodes of Sanctified come out every Wednesday only on Spotify. So be sure to hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. <laughs>